Welcome to the Clinical Research Podcast. Every month we bring you the latest developments in research explained by our world-leading clinicians, academics and scientists based in Nottingham. There are about 300 researchers at Nottingham University hospitals, doctors, nurses, lab scientists and the people who manage the contracts, often in the millions of pounds, that pay for the research. But they couldn't do what they do without the thousands of other people who sometimes don't get the credit they're due. Most drug treatments start off in the laboratory, but before they're allowed to be used by the NHS, they're trialled in the wild, that is, on real patients in real life. And like everything over the last year with COVID-19, that's happened at a faster, bigger scale than ever before. In Nottingham alone, more than 10,000 people have signed up to be part of our work on trials, including the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine and dexamethasone, amongst others. Both of those and the other COVID-19 related studies we're running are having real life-saving effects. So we wanted to say thank you to those people for their help, and we commissioned Yorkshire poet Ian McMillan to write a thank you on our behalf. I talked to him about how he wrote the poem, why he likes the shape of numbers, even though they make him nervous, and how words and numbers should get together for a picnic. A socially distanced one, of course. But first he read the poem. Here is hope in a sample of air. Here is tomorrow in yesterday's sweat. Here's commitment by just being there. Here is something the world won't forget. As the darkness fades and the thick mist clears, moments of change can be traced back to here. The people of Nottingham stepped forward. Just ask. They'll roll up the sleeves and get down to the task. Time was freely given, as was the gift of blood, all to make a process so much more understood. Volunteers for something that can save a life in the middle of these savage times. That cut us like a knife, waiting for a moment when a name's read out. Extraordinary, ordinary people, of that there is no doubt. Here's a light to pierce the gloom. We'll see the COVID numbers fall. We'll see the vaccine numbers rise. So thank these people. Thank them all. Words can sometimes fail to do what they want to say. And words can sometimes fail to say what they want to do. But here are two words for now, for today. They gleam like gold and they're shining true. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We sent, we sent you the idea, the brief. Uh, what was your response to it? What was your kind of process of working that through? And we talked about it in January when times were so hard, weren't they? We were getting such high numbers. And, you know, me going, we'll see the COVID numbers fall. We'll see the vaccine numbers rise. That was a hope rather than an expectation, so thank goodness we have. What I normally do is when I get a brief that is not initially a poetic brief, I'll just sit with it for a while. You know, I'll read it, then I'll go to bed, actually, and then I'll go to sleep. And somehow, some magical process happens while you're sleeping, and your brain seems to sort things out. I never like to delve too deeply into it in case I break it. And then it comes back with some ideas. So somehow the next day, you'll then be presented with some things. So I remember, just got the poem in front of me. I, I remember thinking about that word, thanks. I thought that's got to be in there. Thanks is a good word. I thought about the idea of the job in hand and it being a very practical thing. And then the first few lines just popped in. That's what happens when you sleep on it. So those lines, here is hope in a sample of air. Here is tomorrow in yesterday's sweat. 
I'm sure in some of the brief that you sent me, there was the idea of it making people sweat and the idea of the sampler there. So those lines kind of wrote themselves. And then you have to make sure you don't rush. So I left those lines where they were. And then again, the brain just starts to grow things around them like coral. And it goes, how about this? How about that? How about putting that in? And then you read it aloud and things that you thought looked all right sound ridiculous. And then it just builds from there. And so it's with this kind of public poem, it's got to have rhythm, it's got to have rhyme, it's got to be clear and simple so that somebody just happening upon it won't get put off by it, won't think it's too complex and too poetic and be drawn into it. So that, that was the way I approached it. And then we had a couple of goes at redrafts, which is always good. I love rewriting. It's my favourite thing. So when people go, that doesn't quite work, you go, all right, I'll have a go at that. And that's always interesting. So that was how I approached it, really. Obviously, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are involved in research, and that's terribly kind of logical and rational and analytical. Mm. Do you think there's much analysis, rational stuff going into when you're writing on any level? I think there's, there's analysis that I couldn't actually write down what it was. So somehow when I'm writing something like this, my antennae are out and my feelers are out and my tentacles are spread and my brain is receptive. So there is a kind of analysis going on. So the analysis of years of doing it and the analysis of experience is going, no, that word won't work with that word. If you put that word next to that word, those vowels will rub against each other. If you put that word in la that line, then it's lost some of its potency and power because you mentioned it earlier. On the other hand, if you repeat that word very close to the other word, it'll have something. So all the time, when you've done this kind of thing a lot, there is the kind of unconscious engine of analysis running in the background that will, a bit like, when you sleep on the lines, there's this unconscious engine that is going, look, that doesn't work, that doesn't work, that might not work, that might work. Try that, try that, do that. So it is a kind of research project. Each poem that you attempt is a kind of research project. And the difference is, I guess, that, well, partly that my poems are not a matter of life and death, but also that somehow the process is invisible and mysterious but you know it's going on and you want it to be and I wouldn't want to analyze too closely how the thing works because superstitiously you think you might break it. With a lot of the research a lot of it is numbers and science. What do you think words bring to a project like this that those numbers don't? I'm very excited about working next to people who work with numbers because it's like working with somebody who speaks Estonian because I don't speak Estonian, but I can have a go at maybe translating something from Estonian with the help of an Estonian speaker. And if I meet somebody who speaks numbers, then in a perfect world, we could sit in a room and somehow the numbers and the words would meet in the middle and we could learn things from each other. As a young man, I was frightened of numbers. You know, we, I wasn't taught maths very well. Algie Smith, who taught us maths, kept nipping out to have a sig and then would just leave us to do stuff. So I was kind of an orphan. 
as far as numbers go. So what, what I like about numbers are the kind of poetic edge of them. I like the idea of numbers that are so vast you don't know what they are. I like the simple repetition of numbers. Me and my grandson, who's four, will just send numbers to each other, back and forth, back and forth, so it becomes like a skipping game or a rhyme. And I like that. I like the kind of mystical, rhythmic power of numbers. But I'm still, at the age of 65, a bit nervous of their kind of power and the quality that they have of tying something down very, very tightly. What would you say to maybe the the opposite end of the, the spectrum from you, the people who are, have that attitude to words? How would you, what would you say to them to encourage or? I suppose the difference between words and numbers is that numbers are not often ambiguous and they're not often nuanced. And in fact, if you had ambiguous numbers, then you're stuffed. You know, if you say, look, we're going to fit this eight by three into this three by eight, it's not going to work. You can't be ambiguous. Numbers have got to tell their story exactly. So I'd say to people who are nervous of words, this is easy for me to say because I, I like words. I'd say, don't be nervous. Don't be nervous. The word police aren't going to come and knock on your door and carry off to word prison. In fact, you know, words are happy when you play with them. Words really like being tickled it makes them laugh i had much the same thing with numbers i don't get it what's going on here they're just these big shapes and one of my bosses years and years ago pointed out to me when you get those don't look so much at the numbers but look at the notes look at the words you're right that in the end if i was presented with a series of numbers i would just become kind of blind you know to talk about word blindness i'd be number blind and then i feel i feel inadequate i get a bit sweaty I think what I'm, these numbers, they're not for me, they're for somebody else. But you're right, if we can somehow look at the notes, look at the words that explain the numbers and that illuminate the numbers, that might be the way that these two tribes, rather than going to war, can actually meet up and have a nice number slash word-based picnic somewhere. That would be a thing. I do like the shape of them, by the way. Numbers have got great shapes, lovely shapes. There was a worm on my early stroll this morning that I drew to, it looked like a Z. It also looks a bit like a three. And I do like the shapes of numbers. I can see a number of people going, what's he on about, the shapes? But hopefully, hopefully they won't mind that. <laughs> In terms of the, all those words as well, what do you think there might be sort of therapeutic value for more people at large, the kind of people who are involved in the research? Do you think they can help after a year of lockdown? You can find comfort in words. You can just write things down, write down how you're feeling. Sometimes people take on too much. They go, right, I'm going to write for an hour every day. For an hour every day, I'm going to write. And I say, no, don't do that. Have a writing minute. So that every morning between, I don't know, 10 to 9 and 9 minutes to 9, there's your writing minute. Get your cup of tea in your hand. Write some words down. And the thing about a writing minute is it's like a ripple effect so that your day then funnels down and beyond your writing minute. So in the afternoon, you're thinking, I wonder what I'm going to put in the writing minute. I wonder what's going to go in that writing minute. And it concentrates the mind. So I would say, have a go. Have a go at writing something down. Because in years to come, when my grandkids are grown up, researchers are going to think, what was it like? What was it? What did you do in the pandemic, Daddy? What was it like? And if we've written down how we felt, and if we've written down what we saw, and if we've written down how the news made us feel, that'll be, that'll be absolutely invaluable. And the more of us who aren't writers that do it, the better. 
It's like that old mass observation thing from the 30s when people who weren't writers just wrote down what they did. And that's proved an invaluable source of not only linguistic delight, but also historical delight. So I would say to people, have a go, keep a notebook or read it, record it. Maybe have a notebook, write down something, one minute a day, and it'll help you, but it will also help future researchers who will think that's what it was like in the pandemic of 2020, 2021. The word, some of the words in the poem, there's the line, words can sometimes fail. So how, do you, how might they fail and how are they succeeding? In the poem, the idea is that simple words, like thank you, we use it so often, you know, we use the word thank you so often. But in a sense, sometimes simple phrases like that fail. And maybe what the poet's job or what any of our jobs is, is to make sure the words don't fail and just try and get them to work properly. So, yeah, words do sometimes fail because they're sometimes not adequate for the job or sometimes they're not adequate at translating the idea that you had that might have been in numbers and translating it into language. So they do often fail, but then you've got to work with the ones you've got. You know, we all wish we could work with the perfect tools, but in the end, the imperfect tools of the language that we know is all we've got. We all wish we could be better at words than we are, but the more we practice, I think the better we become. And that was the conversation. If you want to hear the poem again, there's a link to a YouTube video in the show notes. The Clinical Research Podcast is produced and presented by the Research and Innovation Department of Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust. You can find out more about our research and links to the information in this episode in the show notes.